Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast that explores mental health, especially for folks of color. I'm your host, Johnzel Anderson. I'm a licensed therapist and owner of Panoramic Counseling in Richmond, Virginia. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. Hi, everyone. This episode kicks off the January Mental Health Book Club. We will be covering Michelle Obama's new book, The Light We Carry. We are covering the beginning of the book through chapter three in this episode. So if you haven't read that yet, feel free to pause this, read that, and then come back to this episode to hear the discussion. But enjoy the show. So I will be honest with y'all. I am usually a lot better at having the stuff read in advance, but I literally was cram reading it up until right before we started because the last week has been insane. But I did get caught up, uh, actually read a little bit past where I was supposed to because I was really like in a frenzy to try to uh, get caught up. So what are y'all's like initial reactions to this first section of the book so far? Um, hi everyone. My name is Imani. Um, I just want to say that I am so happy you are reading this book. Um, it's, this book is actually something that I actually needed to read at this point in my life. So I'm very happy you're reading this. Um, my takeaways from the first part of the book was that I could relate to Michelle Obama. And I thought that was really cool and special because I'm learning more about her that I've ever known before. And I'm also getting little gems from the book that kind of give me um, the word I'm looking for is guidance in my own life. So I'm also, I'm writing notes as I'm reading the book because there's things I know I'm gonna come back to and I'm going to say, wow, that was really powerful. So, so far, this book is really powerful. I love that. And I also feel, um, first of all, I don't know why I never thought of her perspective of how painful it was for her to leave the White House. And as she described it, I was like, God, yeah, like all the hard work they did for eight years and then... I don't know. John Zell, can are you going to edit some of this stuff out? Can I be free? Like, Yes, profanity is allowed, and you can okay. say what you need to say. I don't really care. I mean, when that orange fuck took over, like, I was just like, my God, you know, like, like all, I mean, he's, anyway, that, that to me, I don't know why I never, I guess I was caught up in just my, my own world of pain with that, with that stuff, you know, but, but then I also knit and I crochet and, and hearing her like click the clicking of the needles and that she's like, okay, let's cast on. I was like, oh, what a beautiful analogy to get started on something new. Um, yeah. So I, I was, I was excited. I will say that as a long time anxiety sufferer, um, I feel like she's, I don't want, I'm not flippant, but it's like her ideas are like, okay, let's just acknowledge that. And, and then let's do better. And I'm like, well, what about like the, the jumbled minds? Like that can't, so I'm excited too, Imani, to see like how, how she really digs in and, and fixes that. So, or, or gets into that. So yeah, that, that, that was my impression. I too, my initial impression now, granted, I am, I, operate on a high level of cynicism, sarcasm, and uh, 
generous amount of like dark sense of humor. So the title to me, The Light We Carry, came across as pithy, but I love Michelle Obama. I've read, I read her book Becoming several times and I really enjoyed it. So I knew that it wasn't like a memoir. I initially was like, oh, I hope this isn't like one of those kind of self-help pithy 12 steps to living the life you want sort of books, which if you enjoy those types of books, all the more power to you. They just don't resonate that well with me. But Becky, yeah, I did have that initial because I also I live with panic disorder. I have an anxiety disorder. So some of the shorter references to like anxiety and then kind of the optimistic like spin on it did give me a little bit of concern. But she actually gets in on some specifics of mental health early on in the book. So I think it's safe to say that she'll probably dig a little bit deeper than just the surface level. So looking forward to see how that unfolds. And I might be in the minority with this, but that first introduction chapter was hard for me to get through. Like at that point, I was like, I don't even know if I can really read this whole book because I struggled. But once it actually got to the real chapters, it was much better. Like, I guess I went into it kind of like you. I was like, oh, she's just going to give us all these vague tools that are supposed to help us. And I was like, this is going to be a long read. I'm so glad you said that because, well, you and I were just in the last um, book club and that book was like, I hate to say riveting because riveting about someone's pain, but it read so much quicker and you can really tell the education levels and the difference between Michelle Obama and um, oh, what's her name? Um, who, who was, what was the other one? Yeah, you, you can completely tell that they are writing at completely different levels. And so, yeah, I was like, okay, this is really dry. And like you, I, I force fed myself, like last night I read like, you know, 50 pages. Cause I was like, Oh God, like, <laughs> like I need some meat, something juicy. <laughs> just, just <laughs> Truly each time we like crack open a new book, it is new to me. I have no clue if it's a flop, if it's good, but it is a different type of book than the last book we read, which was I'm Glad My Mom Died by Jeanette McCurdy, because that was like a memoir and it was really going deep into a specific storyline. Michelle Obama has already written Becoming, which is kind of her memoir, if you will. So this is more so like, I wouldn't even say a sequel to it, but it's kind of like expanding on certain parts of that. I do like the hope. Her and Barack have always been big on the word hope. And all you have to do is live one day in this country to like feel like your hope in humanity is being drained. So for her sake and for what her and Barack represent, I'm okay with uh, embracing some of the pithy, like optimistic. Hopefully it continues to get deeper, but if y'all don't mind, I'm going to jump into her father's MS story because I feel like that. I'm sorry, Janta. This is um, Lakeisha. I wanted to definitely talk about that. That's what oh, okay. I wanted. It was um, a level of vulnerability that I saw when I was reading that and her talking about the frailty of her father, but yet the strength of her father. So it was, to me, that's what kind of drew me in, that story about her dad and having MS and fighting through that for 10 years, using his cane and 
then the analogy of the uh, the cane as a tool. I really enjoyed that part. It was interesting how she started off with that really heavy, like um, difficult thing. Obviously, her dad passed away, I think, when she was 27. But the quote I highlighted, I highlighted several in that section, but quote, the sound of a full grown man hitting the floor is thunderous, a thing you never forget. It shook our tiny apartment like an earthquake, sending us rushing to his aid, end quote. And then how she kind of pivoted and talked about tools. So um, as I was reading the introduction, I was like, well, where is she going with this? Because she's already written her memoir. How is she going to focus this down in this book? And then a couple pages later, she gets into the theme of tools. So she says, did my father love any of these things or did, or, or did they solve all of his problems? Not at all. But did he need them? Yes, absolutely. That's what tools are for. They help keep us upright and balanced, better able to coexist with uncertainty. They help us deal with flux to manage when life feels out of control. And they help us continue onward, even while in discomfort, even as we live with our strands exposed, end quote. So then we obviously learn that she did that on purpose because the whole book is her toolkit. But I do like that she gives a disclaimer that it's not as simple as follow my toolkit and you'll be great because she is getting into some vulnerability like she talks about imposter syndrome and I'm like you're Michelle Obama like but for her to say like and she talks about this in her book Becoming that was the whole premise of it uh is the belief as a small child that she was not enough but still as not only being in the white house and things like that but she's talking about like giving a speech I want to say it was for the Democratic Democratic uh, Convention more recently, but feeling like it wouldn't be good enough, especially like losing hope throughout like the pandemic and all the things that were going on. So like Imani had said, this really like humanized her. And I think at least for me, I was able to like resonate with her a lot as just a regular person, not as this like icon. That was nice. But Getting into the the father's uh, MS, did anybody else have any reactions or thoughts on that section? Well, that that kind of my father's going through a lot of health issues right now, and he's having trouble walking. He's just he's his health is failing, and so it just again brings back that we all go through these sort of seasons and phases of our lives at different times, and. We have people that we love and look up to and think of as larger than life. And then we watch them become frail and kind of revert back to, you know, needing it. And so just the comparison, like you say, because she's, I mean, Michelle Obama, you know, like who, who, you know, and knowing that she went through that, um, I, I, I appreciated that. I, um, I agree. I mean, everything you just said was exactly what I was going to say as well. My father also has that sickness. But what I liked the most about reading that part was not only could I relate to what she was saying was I could visualize like a time, you know, in my life where when that happens, you get like, like a brief pause, like your stomach goes nuts. So you could kind of feel that emotion behind what she wrote there. And I'm like, wow. Um, I mean, some people, you know, may never experience that, but for those that have, I felt like that's the way we could say, wow, I can't believe, you know, you just put that in words. 
And so I and I, I also like hearing the sound of the cane falling, because if you know, you know, you know, that's just a sound you would hear. Even if you went to like an AME or like a church where there's a lot of elderly people there, you hear that sound. and It's like clack. And so I like that. Um, the tools help keep us upright. I wrote that down because I was like, wow, that was a really powerful statement. You know, so that was what I got from it. And and that she's calling it a tool, not and and not a crutch. And 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 a crutch has that dual meaning, you know, of sort of, you know, an excuse. A crutch could also be labeled as, but it's a tool. And then when he moved to a wheelchair, that was yet another tool to keep him going and keep him strong and participating. So yes, yes, definitely. Yeah, my dad, we had to put a ramp into his house and had to widen the doors for a wheelchair. And so um, this would help me, you know, these are his new tools, even though I'm, I'm, I'm very cynical, <laughs> you know, and, you know, it, but, you know, changing my thought pattern around that would be helpful um, for me and for him and when I saw her say that she had become cynical, I like stopped and read it a couple of times. I'm like, Michelle Obama can't be cynical. So again, that was just another thing that kind of, it was like, oh, she's a lot like me. On the topic of MS, um, if anyone either listening to the podcast or here is interested in learning more about that, there's a really good podcast called MS Conversations with Candy. I've actually been on that podcast as a guest before. I don't know anybody with MS uh, personally, but I've learned so much about it just through that podcast. So if you're interested in learning more about like the different dynamics of that, not just physical, but emotional, she's had like specialist, um, therapist, uh, mental health, physical health people, doctors, all of that on there. So it's a good source of information. I highly recommend checking it out. Getting into her rationale for writing the book. Obviously, she's talking about like her her toolkit and things like that. Again, I was shocked that she mentioned experiencing both. I, I guess the anxiety is a little bit more prevalent or present, but then she talks about depression too. So given the mental health nature of this meeting, I'm interested to see what y'all's thoughts were on that part. Um, for me, I think I've dealt with depression way before the pandemic started. But for a lot of people, that's when they realized they were probably depressed because you had to sit still. Like it was no going out, doing all this extra stuff that people were so used to doing. And I think that's part of what she said, that she never really had serious issues with it until the presidential run, until having to sit during the pandemic, feeling like you weren't doing enough. And um, I think for me, I guess all of us at some point go through that feeling where we feel like we're not doing enough either to help friends, family, ourselves, community, all that kind of stuff. But she made some really good points where she's like, sometimes you have to make it smaller to feel like you can even take that first step versus trying to solve the whole problem all at once. I love that. I loved how she was talking about getting letters from young, you know, you know, teenagers or young women saying, I want to change the world right now. And her, her response was, let's do it one little lift at a time. So, you know, go out with your community, clean up the park or, you know, ground your neighborhood, help your neighbors do meals on wheels. And if everybody does that, then it becomes like almost a monumental 
task that everybody's doing, but everyone's doing their little part. And, and by doing that, you're more engaged in your community. And then you start to feel better in theory <laughs> about yourself and, you know, your worries go away or whatever, whatever. Um, yeah. But I, I, I really, I like that too. She tapped into something that I think we'll see a lot more about as we get further away from like the deadly part of the pandemic. But she really did talk about the impact of the pandemic on mental health. Now, granted, I'm a therapist, so I was right in it, you know, watching, you know, depression go up because of isolation and things like that. But I think the reflective part about the pandemic for me was that it was the first time in my life that everyone was forced to stop. I mean, we've had tragedies that kind of shake us, but this is the first time that it was like breaks, sit down, don't do nothing. Um, and so the quote I have from page 30 is, being busy is a kind of tool this way. It's like giving yourself a suit of armor to wear. If someone, shooting arrows, if someone is shooting arrows in your direction, you're less likely to register any hits. There simply isn't time. End quote. And I relate with that because I'm very much a like busybody as a person with anxiety. I thrive in my routine. I thrive in uh, control, not in the sense that I'm a controlling person, but control is in anxiety makes you feel like several things are out of your control. So a way to cope with it is to maximize and focus in on routines and things that can be within your control. But for me personally, with my anxiety, if I slow down or have unstructured uh, time or lack of routine, that's when my uptick happens. That's when panic attacks happen. I'm the person you would think you go on vacation, you relax. I go on vacation and have panic attacks because it's completely unstructured. I work with a lot of young people, especially I, I remember it hit the teenagers really hard. And it was the first time they ever had to sit there and forcibly almost like be mindful and present in silence. And our world is not built like that. We're not built to sit silent and reflect. Like um, we're always engaged. We always have some sort of, you know, YouTube or music or news or something going on in the periphery. We never really slow down. So the world halted at the same time. And it was from a therapist perspective, it was an interesting observation of human behavior because I'd never seen it before. But on a personal level, all of us were terrified. And a lot of people are still recovering from the collective trauma of that. So I just really appreciated that she spoke on that. Question for all of you, based on what she said about small things, obviously, Michelle Obama talked about her small thing was knitting, and now she'll knit during a Zoom call or during a meeting with her uh, team and stuff like that. So knitting was it for her. I know for me personally, it's uh, reading books, specifically memoirs. Uh, I have a podcast, I journal, um, and I also write a blog. Those are kind of my outlets where I do something creative and kind of tap out from you know, obviously my main job is being a therapist. Those are my little small things. I'm interested to hear what y'all's small things are. Well, I am the type of person where I will try anything once. And so I've made it intentional for me because I know I get bored sometimes and I'm, I'll just drop it out of nowhere. I, I make my intention to do something different 
every weekend of my time. Like, so for instance, this week, I'm going to be tie dyeing some shirts and, you know, just doing simple DIY things that can carry me throughout the week to know that I did something that I enjoyed for myself and inner child. And I was present with myself at that moment instead of focusing on work stressors, social life, what I'm supposed to do at my age, you know, all those things that even Michelle mentioned in the book, you know, the things that we think we should be doing at where we are in life. So that's what I do in my spare time. I just do different activities like roller skating or spending time with my dogs, taking photos, different things. Um, I'm an educator. And so just John Zell, what you said hit home because we, I was talking to a friend of mine today about it and teachers are still healing too, because we thrive off the relationship. I call them my babies, but my children and it's hard, you know, but through the entire pandemic, I think I crocheted a giant blanket quicker than I've ever in my entire life. (laughs) And it was like zigzag, like it was crazy. Um, but aside from that, I like to knit. Um, I also officiate swim meets. Um, so I'm an official. I also volunteer, um, you know, with, with our swim leagues. Um, and I also, during the pandemic, I tutored, I tutored Spanish students, um, which was kind of fun. Um, and, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, I cook, cook too. Cooking too is a huge release for me. Um, I just get to zone out. So, yeah, those are the, those are the, my little things. Um, one of the things, the reason why I had to get off the line, um, making special occasion cakes. Someone had contacted me about making a baby shower cake in February and, Baking is so relaxing for me, and it gives me opportunity to be creative. And that's my break from mental health. I don't have to think about someone else and their issues. I don't have to do any clinical oversight. That's just my time to kind of be in my zone and be creative. Um, and then decorate. I'm always decorating something in the house, whether it's, you know, painting, having someone else paint or um buying new stuff for the house, making things pretty, making things smell good. Um, All of that's relaxing and fun for me. So those are my little things. Outside of playing with Cairo all day. I enjoy that too. The kids always take your mind off of the things that are too big for you to deal with. (laughs) Um, For me, I think during the height of the pandemic, I started making candles. Uh, I sold those for a little bit. Um, started a business with it, learned how to run a lot of the business software, which was helpful because I didn't know I could do something at that level, I guess. Um, more recently, I picked up starting to learn how to DJ um, for the equipment for my graduation when I got my master's and just never did anything with it. It had just been sitting there and looking at me. So I finally got started with that. Um, I like to read, so that helps a lot. So I think the common thread for all of us is that our small things are something that are creative in nature. I guess the observation I have is that a lot of us, most jobs and professions and responsibilities require us to give, to pour out. Um, 
And so with our self-care things, we want something that allows us to create, to build. So I just noticed that common thread between everything that everybody shared. I did have one more quote that Michelle Obama gave about mental health. Uh, She was talking about the, I think someone had wrote to her, uh, their name was Tiffany. It's on page 42. And so she said, and here's what I'll say to not just Tiffany, but to anyone young or otherwise who is trying to find their purpose inside of all that's big and fierce and urgent in the world. Yes, that's exactly right. When you want to make a difference, when you want to change the world, your mental health will sometimes get in the way. And that's because it's supposed to. Health is built on balance. Balance is built on health. We need to tend carefully and sometimes vigilantly to our mental health, end quote. Uh, I can definitely relate with the sentiment of when you have a big dream or a big goal or a big concern, the mental health that you experience, you know, it's going to be under pressure. So I was interested to see what y'all had to to say about that. It just kind of reinforces the need for balance. Because if there are aspects of your life that are encroaching in on other areas of your life, your mental health will not be stable. You will not, you know, you may have symptoms, you may feel stress, you may feel the after effects. So that kind of reinforces to me the importance of creating balance and having these outlets in your life. Because if not, your mental health will show you. That's usually the first thing. Physical health, it might take a little bit longer, but the mental health, definitely. And that's a great segue into, I believe it was, I forget what chapter it was. It was about fear. There were a lot of quotes from that one. Um, I'll just share a few, but I think we can just open up the general discussion about fear because it's relevant. I mean, she just got done talking about like the pandemic and the uncertainty and also her experiences with, you know, um, moving on from the White House and things. So her um, sentiment was that of being like comfortably afraid. Uh, She talks about avoidance, which I'll share later if there's time, but a couple of quotes that I put down is that bigotry is often a reaction to fear. I thought that was probably the most powerful thing I've read in this book so far, because it's so concise, but it is very like applicable to a lot of things that we see right now. And a lot of the things that we have fear about are because of bigotry, right? So it's a cycle, actually. She also later says, our hurts become our fears and our fears become our limits. So that was kind of the the connection where I just said like, oh, she talks about mental health and how if we don't have balance, it's going to be off kilter. But then it's like, okay, if we're off balance, we then get fear. And then if we have fear that's not dealt with properly, we're going to be limited. And then limits obviously are going to impact our quality of life. So, um, and she also goes into parenting with fear, which I'll, I'll share, share later, but um, I like the metaphor of using fear as rocket fuel. Cause I definitely can relate with that. I mean, I was diagnosed with anxiety when I was in college, I was supposed to be a teacher and I changed my mind and, you know, ended up, I was in therapy, um, throughout that transition and had, crippling anxiety, like bad panic attacks and stuff. And then somehow, obviously, years later, I was able to turn my knowledge of anxiety firsthand into becoming a therapist who specializes in treating anxiety, right? And my 
rocket fuel, my thing that kind of sets me apart, I think, is that I just talk to my clients about what it's like to live with anxiety and they immediately build rapport because they're like, oh, you get it. You're not just talking at me, but you experience it. It help, It's my superpower. So the thing that was a fear and crippling at one point has become my rocket fuel for what I do for a living. So I really like that connection that she made, but I'm interested to see what y'all uh, thought about this section on fear. Feel free to share quotes that you highlighted or anything like that. It's definitely um, uh, kind of open-ended here. I like how she kind of went in on the story about her mom trusting her to take that long walk <clears throat> at such a young age. And um, it kind of makes you think back to a time whenever you had to, you know, put your toe in the water and jump right into whatever fear you had. So I could definitely relate to that. I thought that was really cool to kind of, um, because that's kind of vulnerable to talk about. You know, that's your fear, you know, walking alone as a young kid and knowing that, you know, you came home and your mom also had that fear. I think for me as a kid, that would make me feel kind of, you know, sad in a way. But I guess, um, but I did also like how she talked about how you had to have a little bit of fear and then you come out knowing that you were successful. And I think that I could take from that where it's okay to have that little bit of fear. It just matters, you know, if you push through and if you're successful in the end, that's what really matters. And I'm like, okay, that's really good. I'm glad she kind of put that in the book because I needed to hear that. Coming from a perfectionist point of view too. And to piggyback off of that, on page 68, she talks about, she says, quote, what my mother showed me is that if you try to keep your children from feeling fear, you're essentially keeping them from feeling competence too. And I thought that was really powerful. We obviously fear is scary. So our brain tells us, oh, get rid of it. Um, but if we get rid of it, we don't have a reason to be competent. Um, and I thought that was interesting, especially, you know, those of us who have children, it's like you want to swoop in and protect your children, but you also debilitate them. You make them helpless if you do everything for them. So I thought it was interesting how she made that connection with parenting too. I love that as, um, you know, I, I have a 22-year-old now and a 16-year-old. And one of the things that I worked with my therapist on was not parenting through anxiety um, because I do have, I, I have a lot, but, um, and yeah, I mean, I, and, and I've never overprotected my children. I don't think, um, you know, I step in when appropriate, but knowing that she feels that way, you know, just like, you know, I, I would encourage my kids, okay, you know, climb the tree or, you know, climb on the thing, you know, and, and, you know, we've had a couple of broken arms and legs and I, I still need the buy one, get one free cast at the um, ortho. <laughs> um, but I, it, in the meantime, me as a mom, I have like eaten all that anxiety. <laughs> so I'm, I'm working through that now, but um, no, I thought a hundred percent but I was, I was a latchkey kid. I kind of feel like I might be the, the more senior person in this group. I don't know. But I walked home alone with no parents coming home until about 5, 5.30 when I was in second, third, fourth grade. Um, and it wasn't 
a walk around the corner, you know? So, um, you know, we, uh, I, I have encouraged my kids, but I will say one quick story. My daughter went to a, a sleepaway camp and they all talked about like, what's something that you've struggled with? And she's like, mom, I didn't really have anything that I've struggled with. And part of me felt proud about that. But part of me also was like, have I done you a disservice? Like, have I protected you too much? You know, so, um, but I don't think so. Cause now she's a nurse and wants to work in trauma. So she, she likes dog bites and resuscitating people. So I don't, I, th- I think I'm good. <laughs> but yeah, no, I totally agree with what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. Love that part. Love Becky, that part. I don't think you're the senior member. I think I am. I, don't, I just turned. I was latchkey too. You were oh, was, Gen yeah. X in the house. <laughs> I was also latchkey. <laughs> latchkey. Yes. I tell you, we all carry a shiv. I think in our everyone sock, here was. Yeah, we carry a shiv in our sock, man. Like we, we got our head on a swivel. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I think for me, it was interesting that she potentially was going to tell Barack not to run for presidency because she was fearful of the outcome. I understand being worried for your family, but trying to find that balance of chasing your dreams and aspirations versus letting your fear overtake you, like that has to have been a hard discussion to have within herself to be like, okay, no, we should do this. Yes, that was like, it just hit me out. And she was like, to think that because of my fear, Barack would not have been president and we wouldn't have done all that work. Like, and I, and of course he asked her, I mean, you know, he, he kisses her on her forehead, you know, like, of course he asked her like, what a loving man. And so, but yeah, yeah, totally. I totally, when I read that, I was like, and to think of, and she acknowledged it, like to think of history, like what, what would have happened, you know, like, not not that anything happened, but, you know, what would have been? So, yeah, no, totally. Yes. And an uh, interesting thing just came to my mind on the topic of fear, but also the presidency and things. The um, inauguration, it's pretty iconic, actually. I'm pretty sure she was wearing yellow, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but they get, they're in the, like, motorcade or whatever, and then they get out of the car and walk and wave to people and I remember watching that afraid that he was going to be assassinated. But they talk about, because I've read Barack's memoir, which is a long book. That is a commitment. Um, if you're going to do that one, good grief. It, he's long-winded. But between reading Becoming, reading his memoir, obviously witnessing and coming of age during that era, um, I just remember the intense fear, but also living in Virginia, um, Southwest Virginia, pockets of lovely old-fashioned racism uh, were aplenty. There were people who blatantly just said things about assassinating Barack Obama simply because he was Black. And there was just a an element of fear, but also as a fellow mixed kid myself like Barack, seeing them overcome that and to do what they needed to do despite that definitely was a component of what shaped me to be who I am today. Um, It was definitely like trailblazing. So, but just on that sentiment of fear, I just will never forget them walking 
um, outside of the car and just thinking you're wide open, like anything could happen here. That's just a fear that that comes to mind, but also seeing all the the fears that they had to overcome, but to look like they weren't afraid while doing it is uh, pretty impressive and kind of surreal. Well, I remember coming home from school one afternoon alone, um, watching Ronald Reagan get shot. And so for me, like living through that, I, I'm, I almost had this perpetual feel that fear that, well, most leaders um, will get shot. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, no. I know there's a glitter. I'm, I'm, I'm going to add to it and we'll edit this out. But I'm not going to lie. I was hoping for it with our last president. It did not happen. There's a glittery ass chair with my name on it. Bedazzled. It's in hell. I know. It's a front seat. It's comfy. It's warm. It's ready for me. I get it. But ever since that, watching all of that whole newsreel, when I was, I don't remember how old I was, but I've always thought that. Like whenever someone important and in public is out, I've thought, like, I thought that with with Biden, like with this whole like rigmarole crap that went on around him with him. I was like, this man's gonna get killed, you know? And um, so yes, yeah. I I I but my fear is from and because my experience is not one of a person of color. I don't necessarily go to that particular place, but I go to more of like, they're an important leader and people aren't going to like them because of their views and they're going to, you know, get taken out. So, yeah. That fear still exists with me today. I, um, you know, because you hear things, um, especially in the pockets of here in Virginia, um, people say things about Kamala Harris all the time. Um, and I always fear for her, even though, you know, we had Barack in the Oval Office for eight years. Um, I'm almost like, why are you in public? <laughs> <laughs> I fear for her safety. Um, yes, the guy that got the fatwa, the fatwa, the, the poet who was stabbed in the neck. Anyway, totally off topic, but. Um, no, I mean, I think it's relevant because, I mean, if we fit, we're we're not as close to it. And we have that type of fear. I can only imagine what Michelle was feeling for not just her husband, but for herself and her family and, and her, her mom's babies. Her babies, yeah. like, yeah, I'd be like, can y'all just go under the tunnel and meet us inside? Yeah, like she is just, she's a badass man. Like her nerve. I remember at the beginning of his election. All those black ministers were praying for Barack. And there's a pretty poignant photo of him. And it's like a circle of about 15 black men that have their hands on him praying because of that same fear. That gave me chills just now. That gave me just absolute chills. So we're going to shift gears into the last chapter that we read. And the title of it was Starting Kind. And she, she starts off and she was talking about Toni Morrison. Um, and so I'll give a small quote here. Morrison learned to dial back the judgment and instead to lead with something warmer, truer, and more immediate, end quote. And so that, uh, I guess, approach of not immediately judging something, but to go with a warmer thing, that is not in my nature. 
I told y'all at the beginning, I'm cynical as fuck. So it's hard for me to, uh, especially in, it's, there's something to be said about experience and your environment and how you react because our defense mechanisms are for self-preservation. But that was, it was kind of foreign concept to me, but that's why we read books. That's why we listen to other people's perspectives is to get something new. Because if we wanted to just do everything the way we've always done it, we wouldn't read books. So um, that is going to be a personal takeaway for me is to try to back off of my initial instinct to judge and to approach things with more like immediacy and the here and now. And an example that she gave was she was like talking to some kids or something like that. And she's going to give a little speech. But one of the questions that was asked is, can I hug you? And it just became uh, all these kids want to hug Michelle Obama. And she's like, whatever I had to tell them wasn't important because what they needed was something more immediate. It wasn't words that they needed. It was um, that connection. And so that's that's one of the takeaways I'm going to take from this section is you don't always have to respond in the exact same way. You can be in the here and now and do things differently. And sometimes it's more effective that way. But I'm interested what y'all thought of either that or just that chapter of the book. Any Anything you want to add? That, I'm sorry. I keep the, the hugging. The hugging part resonated with me as an educator, even though I do teach high school. Um, you know, if someone's having a bad day, you know, I'm sorry. You know, I know the world right now. But if a kid wants to hug, I'm going to wrap my arms around them and I'm going to hug them like nobody's ever, you know, and I'm telling you, when students see that, there's going to be a few more that come that want hugs too. And, and, you know, that, that just really, really resonated with me. You know, somebody's like, all right, yeah, I'll come in. And, you know, and they just, they need that. And it's, um, it's that, that human, not just, you know, it's that human touch and interaction and that, sort of exchange of, hey, I see you, I hear you, you know, I know what you need right now. And it's a little dose of love and not reacting. And I got to tell you, the kids that are the worst sometimes need the biggest hugs of them all. They really do. Becky, they really, I, really do. You know, we're, we're John Zell knows this with our profession, mental health, they, you, you, there's no hugging. Uh, <laughs> but um, we can't deny that humanistic perspective, the importance of connection, and um, also the importance, the healing importance of, of human touch. And especially when you're working with children, um, sometimes that hug may be the only hug that they get for that day, that week, or ever. So that impression is very important and it's healing. So I think we can't deny that. I, of course, ask permission before you hug because not everybody's huggers and you got to make sure it's the right person and all of this other stuff. But once you get through all that rigmarole, um, like Becky said, sometimes the kids that are labeled as the worst, they need the hugs the most because it, it helps them to heal whatever perceptions they have of themselves or what other people tell them about their behavior. They need to know that they're a human being and that they're worthy of love and caring. I had read that section right before I 
went into a, a session, a therapy session, uh, and then I had like a small chunk of time to keep reading before this. And so I was, it was on my mind before I went into that session about the immediacy. So I was meeting with a new person and very much a like standoffish, like angsty teenager. Um, it was like, why am I talking to you kind of person? And um, I really was able to use that, that, that nugget of do something immediate. So towards the end, I would just started talking to him about like, well, you really want to get your license. What's your dream car? We talked for 20 minutes about cars and the, the angst, the get the fuck away from me-ness of this like angsty teenager just melted away. He was smiling and laughing by the end of it. So definitely the you know, that was an example. I, I tried something different, you know, and did something more in the here and now. And it really can break down walls. So uh, whether it be via a hug or getting someone to laugh or just talking about a common interest. Um, anybody else have anything to add to that? Any small things that you do in your life that where that applies? Um, I can resonate with that because I work in an office and as a front desk person, receptionist, you're dealing with not just your personality, but a whole company's personalities. And you have to deal with the smile. So, and I've never came across rude or, you know, angry or mean emotionally to like any of my coworkers, but it kind of reminded me why people come to me, why people continue to talk to me is because I remember, you know, if someone comes to me with an issue and it may be tedious, don't come off as the first reaction, you know, don't just be mean about it. Don't just be direct and straightforward. Ask them, okay, how are you today? You know, take time to do something that you wouldn't normally do first. I don't know. That's what I got from that. I think for me, I work for a local TV news station. So we're constantly getting stories. And in this general area lately, we've had the shooting at Walmart. That was a mass shooting. We had a mass shooting in Virginia Beach a couple of years ago. And now we just had a six-year-old shoot his teacher. So when we go into the newsroom, it's like everybody's constantly kind of tense, kind of, you know, stressed out because of all the stuff we deal with. So it's weird for somebody to come in as an outsider to come in and it may be a heinous story. Somebody just got murdered or something, but we're in there laughing because if you don't find a way to like make light of some of the situations, you're going to be miserable. And like, it's nothing for them to try to like bring in therapy dogs and things of that nature to help us feel better. But I think for most of us, we'd rather just sit and talk to each other, check on each other. It might be a quick hug, a quick text. Hey, how you doing? I know that story was tough. And I think a lot of people never work in that type of situation where you just can't turn off the stories because you're presenting the stories to everybody else. So constantly checking in with other people that you know are in that same situation to offer the type of support you would want have gone a long way in our newsroom. And I, I want to add to like, again, in the classroom, if there's a particularly bristly child and who doesn't, I mean, I, I, I'm just kind of sarcastic and I don't I, I I tone it down obviously for my high schoolers but sometimes you, you don't get along with everybody and I remember one kid in particular I took him out in the hall and I said look I said I kind of feel like there's a tension between us 
just acknowledged it. And he's like, yeah, I noticed it too. And I was like, can we start over today? Let's just pretend like, you know, not pretend, but let's just start over, you know, like I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be kinder. You're going to be kinder. And it's, and I tell you, just acknowledging that sort of, like you said, John Zell, you could just see the wall just calm down. And we had a much better relationship um, going forward. So I tried something different and I was nervous about, you know, is this going to work? Is this going to backfire? You know, um, but, but trying something new and creative, you, you got it when you work with people, you got like, like the dogs and the, you know, all, you know, the public, you've got to be willing to try something different outside of your normal comfort zone for sure. And I think to piggyback off of that, too, because we talked about the pandemic and kind of the mental health the ramifications of that and stuff like that. But the, the the physical isolation of people throughout, I mean, I know for me personally, I was isolated in my home for a solid two years or more. Um, I just started seeing clients in person again in September. So that was... It's like two and a half years since the the whole thing started, but the the people like they've been so isolated, and you can see it in our society. Like people, there's all like a huge amount of like social anxiety because if you don't use a skill set, you kind of are rusty or you lose it. Uh, some people truly are feeling like they don't know how to interact with others anymore. So this, while when I read the chapter initially, the cynic kicked in and it was like starting kind, like, is that what we're doing here? But we've all just given examples about how small acts of kindness are sometimes leaps and bounds more than anything you can say out of your mouth. And I think as far as like the physical touch thing, like a hug or whatever, the world is needing more of that because some people are really wounded and traumatized by the isolation. Some people are still isolated and we're, we're all collectively recovering, but we still got a lot of healing to do just from this collective trauma that we've all been through. So that was the last chapter. We kind of went through the various topics and things like that, that were covered. We did the beginning through chapter three. Was there any Thing that we didn't get to or something that jumped out at y'all that you want to share now? Her friend telling himself, hey, buddy, every day in the mirror really stood out to me. Like to actually intentionally be kind to yourself as the tar of your day instead of picking yourself apart was really good advice. That I think not enough people really do, unfortunately. I just imagine myself in the mirror being like, hey, buddy. And <laughs> With my sarcasm, I don't know that I could do it. <laughs> but yeah, and then didn't she end it with "Hey, buddy" or something? Wasn't there like, like the last couple words of the chapter were the "Hey, buddy," and he just seemed like such a a cool guy. Like I wanted to hang. Yeah, hey, buddy. He called. I called across the room to Ron the next time I saw him. He just smiled at me and said the words right back. So. It's like they're, yeah, yeah, the hey, buddy. <laughs> yeah. But it is, it's like looking at yourself and trying to think of three positive things. <laughs> I'm so bad trying to think of three positive things. Self-kindness is a hard one. I'm always like with my therapy clients, I usually sign off with be kind to yourself. 
And I always tell them, I, I'm not just giving that to you as like a pithy, like, oh, be kind to yourself, you know, glitter and rainbows, you know, to finish the session. But I say that to them because I have to say it to myself all day. Because while if you're not nice to other people, it's going to catch up with you and it's going to get regulated just by society, you know, uh, there's no checks and balances on how we talk to ourselves. So obviously be kind to others as it was kind of broken down in that chapter three, but I don't, it wasn't specifically talked about there, but turning that inward and being kind to yourself. And I thank you for adding that Nita, um, looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, Hey buddy, you should be your own friend. And I think that's a, that's a, um, a goalpost that we can all work towards is do I look at myself as a friend? and that could be, that's that's years of work right there. I'll add it to my to-do list, but that's that's a good challenge. I mean, we're in the beginning of the new year, right? Asking yourself, are you, do you treat yourself like a friend? I really like that. And I think too, it's it's just so interesting how we're, it's so much easier to be kinder to others than to ourselves. And it's, why is that? What is, what is that behind that? Like, because you would think that you would love yourself to love others. And it's not that you don't love yourself, but it's so much easier to be kinder to others. For me, anyway, I can say that. Dr. Roney, do you want to comment on that? That's Why did I know you were going to call me? <laughs> You're the other therapist in the room. Yeah, you got well, to take it. Uh, <laughs> well, for for women... And John Zell knows this. I'm a huge feminist. I think we're socialized to focus on others instead of ourselves. Um, we're socialized to be kind and look out for the best interests of other people. Um, anything outside of that is is deemed as selfish or self-centered. So from the time little girls are born we are trained to to look to others and take care of other people instead of ourselves. So um, I just think it's the we're the product of our domestication. Well, I want to break out of that bitch. <laughs> I can't. I'm, done. I'm not I'm that. Done. And Jazelle can tell you, I'm not that nice to you. I can be kind, but I'm I'm kind of hard nose. I felt that. I you know. <laughs> It gets to the point where I've grown to love myself so much. Anytime, you know, I tell people who's better than, you know, not who's better than me, but what better version of me is there than me, you know? I'm the best Imani there is, you know? When someone gives me a compliment, I say, thank you. And I know, I feel good. I, you know, I look good. I feel good. And I keep it at that because if you've been putting your head down for so long, you get that feeling of no more. I don't want to restrain myself to make others feel comfortable. You should feel comfortable with me feeling comfortable. So that's, that's where I get that. That's right, Amani. I love that. I'll put that on my next 10 year to do list to <laughs> unwind another. <laughs> because I have that imposter syndrome when people are like, good job. And I'm like, really do they really mean it because I think it could have been better you know like <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely um in my I would say in my 20s I just turned 30 
in my 20s, I got really, I let myself get more comfortable with taking compliments and accepting gifts because my teenage years were very much like fierce independence and survival on my own. Um, If I wanted it, I had to get it. And so when I finally got elevated to a point where there were actually like supportive people around me, I kind of reacted as in like, what is your motive? You know, what it, what is your angle at this? And so part of my journey of becoming was letting down the, the walls that I put up that served me well in the past to allow good things and compliments and gifts to find their way to me and not to push them away, not to push people away. So the the like self-kindness and the all of that is definitely a journey. It's not a, oh, I'm just going to do this now. It, it's very much piece by piece and there's going to be steps forward and two back and and things like that. But I love all these sentiments that y'all said of like being, you know, knowing that you're the best version of you that you can be and just owning like, hey, I am pretty great. It feels good. And it feels good hearing y'all say it too. It takes us out of our own mind of like, oh, I must be the only one doing this. And we see people like Michelle Obama, you know, wrestling with these sorts of things. And it's like, well, damn, I guess we're all, we're all figuring this out. So thank you all for being here. Um, So next week on Monday, same time, we're going to go through chapters four through five. So it's a little bit shorter or fewer pages of reading. But since this isn't like a a, a singular storyline, um, like the last book that I did in the book club, uh, feel free to like highlight quotes that you love. You know, I'm a highlight quotes because I love me some quotes and I'll share them with you. But I want y'all to like highlight things that kind of jump out at you and feel free to, you know, open the book and read them out um, in, in the Zoom on the podcast. Um because it's interactive. Um, It is what you make it. But I greatly appreciate all of you making the time to be here today. Thank you for listening. Before you go, consider supporting this podcast in some of the following ways. You can buy me a coffee with the link in this episode show notes. You can leave me a five-star review wherever you're listening to this episode. You can follow this show in your favorite app to be notified of new episodes. And finally, you can subscribe by email with the link in this episode's show notes. Thank you in advance for your support, and I'll see you next time.